isolation, uh, quarantine. You've been seeing these memes popping up all over the place, no doubt. Uh, they're not fun words to use now, especially considering our, our, our current state of affairs. But however, I have come to realize that there couldn't be a more poignant metaphor about the effects of sin isolating you from your God than what we're currently dealing with now around the world. And today, as we continue our study through the book of Colossians, we are finding ourselves starting the second half. As you remember, we believe in, in addition to what the Bible says, but as you know, the legalists, they added to what God's word says. Uh, the liberals, they, they took away from what God's word says. And that's a great thing for you to be able to navigate the world that we live in. If somebody's adding to what God's word says, false. If somebody's taking away from what God's word says, that's false. And so for us today, as we're at home a lot and as we follow the Lord and you parents, as you're training up your children in the way that they should go, it's imperative that you never veer to the left or to the right from the path of God's word. The systematic theology of the scriptures is there for a reason. What does the Bible say from cover to cover about every topic? Take all of those things, put them together, and that is how you receive doctrine. That's how we get doctrine. What does the entire Bible say about a particular subject? So now, Paul will be instructing the Christians in the church of Colossae and giving them the antidote for the poison of carnal Christianity. Maybe you've heard that term, a carnal Christian or a worldly Christian. Uh, now, that term carnal Christianity, that may seem oxymoronic to you when you think about it. It's like a, a contradiction of terms. You know, you have carnal, which means worldly or fleshly. And then you have Christian, which means like Christ or Christ-like. How do those two things fit together? Now, many Christians have fallen into the trap of living in sin, yet professing Jesus as Lord. And that's a, that's a huge thing to be aware of. Living in sin, yet professing Jesus as Lord. Now, maybe for some of you today that are watching this on Facebook or YouTube or the website or the app or wherever you may see this, maybe this whole COVID-19 has shaken you up a little bit. Maybe this whole pandemic that we're living through right now in 2020 has gotten your spiritual attention. You know, this kind of shakes up our, our, our spiritual nature a bit. And that's probably an understatement, you know, to say that we've all been shaken up a little bit. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but God has removed every distraction and every other thing that we may worship. Athletes, sports, shut down. Actors, movies, shut down. Businesses, money, shut down. And I can't help but think of how many of us took for granted the luxury of actually going to church, to be able to go to church. I mean, what a luxury and blessing that was that we took for granted. I, I would... I would say 100% of us, myself included, took for granted this blessing of being able to gather together as the church family to worship the Lord and to study His Word. I don't think any of us are ever going to look at church the same again, because for some of us, going to church was on the back burner. It really was. You know, and maybe it depended on how we felt or what the weather was like outside, and that determined whether or not we went to church, but now it's taken away. Now we can't gather together as a church family. And all of a sudden, it's like we start to think, well, you know, I, I miss church. I really love church. I, I, I wish I could go to church. I know that's how I've been feeling. I, I, if there was ever uh, a doubt in my mind that God had called me to be a pastor and to be in church, I'm telling you, it's absolutely gone. I love church. I love being with you guys. I love seeing you and hanging out with you and worshiping the Lord with you and studying God's word together. And I hope that when we get back to our church, that we pack that place out and we're on fire for the Lord like we've never been before. Now, I don't think any of us are going to be taking a lot of things that we took for granted for granted anymore. But as we kind of segue now into point number one, uh, how does worldly living, uh, this ungodly way of thinking, creep into the life of a Christian? 
If Paul's now going to be addressing Christians living in the flesh or those that profess Christ but deny him with their lifestyles, we need to understand how these things uh, we we need to understand how these things are to work uh, properly. Now, I, I just got a, a quick message that said that uh, the feed is dropping in and out. I hope that uh, you guys uh, refresh. If there's an issue, uh, just refresh your browser or quit your app and then come back in and we should be uh, going up and running again. But so anyway, talking about how a worldly life or a worldly way of thinking creeps into the life of a Christian. Well, I think in order to answer that question, it's first appropriate to start off with the most glaring answer, which is also the title of point number one of two. So you get two points today. And point number one is this. You never change the way you live. You never change the way you live. How do you have a worldly mindset? How do you live as a worldly Christian? Well, it starts off with you never change the way you live. We could even put parenthetically repentance. You never repented. Now, in the dictionary, actually dictionary.com, it defines repentance as this. To feel such sorrow for sin or fault as to be disposed to change one's life for the better and to be penitent. Now, you watching this today, you may have grown up in church. You may be somewhat familiar with church, or maybe it's neither of those. Uh, but you were moved in some way, maybe emotionally at a, at a service at some point in time. And uh, you had some sort of uh, experience that led you to make a profession of faith, you know, to, to profess Christ and to say, you know what, I, I want to be a Christian. Uh, you may have come forward at an invitation uh, in church in Christianese. They call that the altar call. Maybe you came forward or maybe you even said a prayer. And so you had this experience and you went through this motion of something or other. Uh, but repentance, maybe it was never found. Maybe it was never found because repentance is the key for holiness, for being Christ-like as the name Christian implies. It means to be like Christ. So if you say you're a Christian, you're saying that you're living like Christ. So if somebody says, yes, I'm a Christian, they're saying, well, I'm living like Christ. My desire is to be like Christ. My desire is to do what he's called me to do. So someone that considers themselves to be a Christian who goes to church, right, but never repents of their sin, never turns from their carnal or worldly way of living and thinking, that person at best, at best would be considered a carnal Christian. So a worldly Christian. So a worldly Christian does not find true repentance. They never truly and fully commit to Christ. They have these, you know, stragglers that they have of sin that they bring with them. They never cut things off. They never repent and turn and go in the opposite direction. See, the carnal Christian does not have victory over sin. Rather, that person lives habitually, which means sinning is a habit that they regularly take place in. They live habitually in sin. And also because of that, they stunt their own spiritual growth. There's no spiritual maturity that takes place in the life of a carnal Christian. They remain in the same place forever. And that's the best case scenario is to remain static the, the, the more likely case is that you backslide and you go full on into sin. In the definition that I read to you from dictionary.com, uh, it, it stated that the person is truly, uh, that is repentant, is truly sorrowful. Like they feel sorrow for their sin and they are disposed to change one's life for the better. This is huge. Like I feel a sorrow inside enough to, to make me want to change. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he dealt with some very serious, sinful issues. He had to write some very straightforward and painful things in order for the church in Corinth to be able to do what was right before the Lord. And that key phrase is exactly the key phrase, right before the Lord, as opposed to doing what is right in your own eyes. 
If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? I'd like to read to you verses 7 through 9, and actually we'll add 10. 7 through 10. Actually, let me rephrase that. I'm going to utilize my pastor's prerogative and change these verses. I like you guys to look at 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 through 10, which says this, Paul writing, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Okay, this is the letter that he wrote. It was pretty harsh. It was pretty straightforward, and it was dealing with sin. And he says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Upon reading that, I think it's fair to ask yourself, how do you know if you have godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? The answer to that question is found in one word. You ready for it? You ready for it? It's repentance. Repentance. The answer to your question, how do I know if I have worldly sorrow or if I have godly sorrow? It has to do with whether or not you repent. If you repent of your sin, you have godly sorrow. If you remain in your sin, you have worldly sorrow, meaning that you never change. You're sorry that this happened or you're sorry for the consequences or you're sorry that you got caught, you know, but you don't have a sorrow that is a godly sorrow that leads to to repentance. You know, there are a lot of people, I think, in prison that are sorry. You know, they're sorry for what they did, and they're sorry that they just got caught doing it, and they're going to try to be smarter next time kind of thing. That's not godly sorrow. Shedding tears. Some people may get very emotional. You know, shedding tears doesn't mean that you have godly sorrow. This is a huge thing because we often mistake the emotional for the spiritual. And we got to be careful about that. We need to look at the facts of what God's word says so that you might be that man or woman that God has created you to be. Now, do you remember what it was said of Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17? It says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no place for repentance. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 12, verse 17. Esau, who is a sinful, vile man, it says this of him. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let that marinate for a few seconds. He did not repent of his sin or his evil doing, though he was moved emotionally because of it. Though Esau sought repentance, even tearfully, he never turned from his vileness, his fornication, his sin. He's really the classic example from the scriptures of worldly sorrow that does not lead to turning from your sin. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he didn't rejoice and that they were made sorry because being sorry isn't enough. Being sorry isn't enough. There needs to be change. Paul's intention of addressing the issues that needed correction in the church was not to make them sorry, but to spur them to repentance because of this. Because godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, and that's nothing to be regretted. When you're sorry in the spirit and there's a godly sorrow, it leads us to change. That's why those of you that have given your life to Christ, you changed to begin with. You recognize, man, I've sinned. I've done things that were wrong. How could a God in heaven love me and and die for me, even knowing all of these things about me? Well, this is the gospel message for you, that God knows all of your sin and that if you have a true godly sorrow for those things, that you recognize that before God you have sinned and you turn from those things, God will forgive you and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 3. 
verses five through eight, it says then Jerusalem and the setting for this is the baptism of John the Baptist. So he was out there baptizing people in the wilderness. And so that's the setting, you know, crazy hair, big beard, leather belt, ate locusts and wild honey. And he's out in the river and he's baptizing people in the wilderness. And it says then Jerusalem, Matthew three, verse five, and all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to see John the Baptist and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, these were the religious people. He said, listen to this. They were coming to his baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers. How's that for being politically correct or seeker sensitive? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. This is what he told the religious leaders. And I like you in this familiar passage of Matthew 3. I like you to kind of take a little note of this. One of the things that I found interesting about what John the Baptist said to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Um, is really what he acknowledged about them before instructing them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. He acknowledges that they fled the wrath to come, but they had not yet bore fruits worthy of repentance. Now, why is this important? Well, I would say this is the reason why this is important. They were moved emotionally. Maybe there's the big crowds and this popularity and it was the it was the new in thing and everybody was heading out there and hey, well, I want to be a part of this or I want to check it out or you know I want to be involved or maybe I want to get baptized or whatever it might be. They were moved emotionally to the point that they were fearful of the wrath to come, but they had not yet carried that had not yet carried itself over to the spiritual action of repentance and bearing good spiritual fruit. This passage in Matthew is very important for us in understanding the difference between emotional sorrow and spiritual or slash godly sorrow. And from from what we've already established in 2 Corinthians 7 is that worldly sorrow is only at the emotional level. That's it. Worldly sorrow only is the emotions of mankind. That is as far as it goes. Worldly sorrow is on the physical level only. It never reaches the spiritual level. The emotional level is actually the easiest to reach between the two. So if you have the spiritual level and then you have the the emotional physical level, the emotional physical level is actually the easier of the two to be able to reach. You know, maybe, and we've probably been doing this a lot too. I've seen these memes popping up all over the place. You know, I just finished Netflix.com. I just finished Amazon Prime.com. I just finished Hulu, you know, or whatever it might be. I just watched every single Disney movie on Apple Plus, or, or I mean Disney Plus. You know, so we're, we're used to, to, to watching things that move us. We maybe watched a movie and it brought a tear to our eye. It could have been a cartoon. You know, some of these things are pretty thematic these days. You know, we could have heard a song. Uh, read an article, you know, read a book, and it moved us emotionally. But just listen to me very carefully. It is nothing short of a work of the Holy Spirit for a person to be moved spiritually. We can get moved emotionally very easy, depending on even the mood that we're in for that day. But it is nothing short of a divine work of the Holy Spirit for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, to be moved spiritually. Often in churches today, they are seeking to reach people at the emotional level. The emotional level. So that they feel good or that they feel something. You know, they can hype the crowd and, you know, move them with their stories or whatever. Now, now listen, you know me, I'm probably on the other end of being monotone. I feel very passionate about things, and and I think that I communicate in in that way. And there's nothing wrong with being passionate about your relationship with the Lord. There's there's nothing wrong about being fired up about following Jesus. And, And also, on top of that, there are a lot of amazing, powerful stories that can be used as illustrations, and and they bring glory to the Lord. 
You know, we should be passionate about prayer, passionate about God's word. It's the best thing known to man in a physical form. This, this word of God, the, the Bible that we have. But if our passion is not for God's word, if our passion is not for the things of the Lord, if my passion as a pastor is not for God's word and for the things pertaining to the Lord, then I might as well just be emceeing some Christian event, some concert. I'll just throw in a few popular verses, you know, and, and hype you up and then, you know, have you and the crowd float me or whatever it might be. If I'm looking for the emotional response, I can hit the emotional spot. I can hit that emotional spot uh, from a, a, a myriad of different ways. I, I, we could attack it from this way and that way and the other way and have you feel something emotionally. But if all we're looking to do is give the church, if all I'm looking to do is to give you, the church, the emotional high that you may be craving, it's just like us as parents just giving our kids sugar. We put them on a sugar rush. We, we give them something that gives them this temporary, you know, sensation, this high. And obviously, if you have young kids, you know, it's not a very smart thing to do. But if we do that, it means we're giving them something without anything in it of substance that will nourish them. That's the physical level. If at church, if we're only catering to the emotions of individuals, the emotions of the people in the church, we're not giving them anything of substance. We're only stopping at the emotional level and not making our way to the spiritual level where you grow, where you're strengthened, where you mature, where you get powerful. So this is important. And what happens if the church doesn't have anything to nourish them spiritually and we're just hitting the emotional targets all the time, then what happens is that we'll have a generation of malnourished, weak and worldly professors of Christianity. We Christians, having a profession of faith in Christ, but are malnourished, are weak, and are immature. Because culture changes, and we've seen it. Popular opinions, they shift all the time, and not to mention the trials. Christians go through difficulties. Christians go through tribulations just because they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And when those challenges do come, you know, the coronavirus hits. Maybe we lose money. Uh, we, we lose social freedoms. And people go to draw upon the emotional experience that they had on Sunday morning. It won't be there because the emotional high is short-lived. The emotional experience is not a substitute for the spiritual encounter with Almighty God. This is the real deal. This is what's going on. There is a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow doesn't last and doesn't transfer to spiritual repentance. Paul was concerned about their spiritual state more than their emotional state because of the byproducts of repentance. You know, I'm not an advocate for being mean to people. I'm not an advocate for being a jerk or rude or cutting or cruel or however else you know you want to describe just being mean to somebody. I don't care who they are, where they're from, or what they're doing, what they've done, or what they're trying to do. I don't think there's ever an excuse to be mean and cruel to somebody. However, having said that, you need to be able to speak the truth in love. You need to be able to communicate things that are hard and that are unpleasant. And just because something is hard, maybe to say and to hear, or is going to be very awkward or unpleasant, it doesn't mean that it is unloving. You have to know there is a big difference between somebody getting their feelings hurt emotionally and changing spiritually having that godly sorrow versus, you know, catering to somebody's feelings and letting them die spiritually. And it's incumbent upon me as the pastor and us as Christians to be able to speak the truth in love because godly repentance, which lasts, it brings about amazing things. Godly repentance produces diligence to do better next time. It produces diligence to continue doing what's right, 
Godly, godly repentance produces the clearing of your name. Hey, that's who I used to be. That's what I used to do. I don't do those things anymore. Yes, I take responsibility for those actions, but I've repented. Godly repentance produces an indignation that is righteously against sin, where I don't like sin. I don't like what it does to my family. I don't like what it does to me. I don't like what it does to my community. I have a righteous anger against that which is evil. Also, godly repentance produces a reverence for the Lord. It's really that healthy fear leading to precautionary moves to not fall into that sin again. I fear the Lord. I revere his name. I'm going to be very cautious when it comes to falling into the same traps of the enemy. Godly repentance also produces a powerful desire to please the Lord. A powerful desire to please the Lord comes from repenting. When I turn from my sin, it produces in me a desire. I want to do those things that please God. And also, godly repentance produces a passion for the Lord. So ultimately, ultimately, we're able to be vindicated because of our faith in Jesus. He forgives us and he cleanses us from our sin. Repentance enables us to begin to establish a new reputation of being free and clear from that sin. And so kids, if you're there and you're listening to this right now, and maybe you get busted by your mom or dad because you did something that was wrong, you can begin to clear your name. You can begin to do what's right. And it all comes from repenting, saying, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me and help me to do what's right next time. And then pretty soon, maybe you've blown it a lot and your parents will come to see you as being, man, that is that, that is a godly young man. That is a godly young woman. She's changed. He's changed. You know, I trust them to do what's right. So you can begin to clear your name. You can begin to, to move forward all through repentance. And you can be clear from that sin. And these are great things to take to heart spiritually and also practically. You must repent of your sin. So back in Matthew 3 and bear fruits worthy of repentance and follow the Lord. And so if you've professed faith in Jesus, but you've never repented of your sinful lifestyle, maybe you're like, hey, I went to Sunday school. Hey, I was born in America. Or, hey, you know, my parents were Christians or my grandpa was a pastor, but you've never turned from your sin. Then it wasn't sin that crept in your life that caused you to be a worldly Christian. It's the fact that you never kicked sin out to begin with. And that's a huge thing. That's why point number one was you never change the way you live. So how does a worldly mindset and a worldly way of living impede a Christian's maturity? Well, it can be, first of all, that you just never repented of your sin. You never turned from it. And it wasn't that, as I mentioned earlier, that sin crept in. It's just you never kicked it out. And so spiritually, if you have a godly sorrow, you, you kick to the side, you remove that sin from your life, whether it's a relationship, a habit, uh, whatever it might be, an, an action, you, you stop, you turn from those things and you need the Lord's help because you may trip up, you may uh, fall over from time to time. But this repentance will produce in you, as I mentioned earlier, that diligence to clear your name and to continue to move forward. If you've repented of your sin, good, that's a good thing. But now let's look at how the Christian is impeded by the way he thinks and what he focuses upon. So as we now head back in, and this leads us back to the book of Colossians and to point number two, which addresses how you as a follower of Jesus can stop carnality or worldliness from making its way into your life. So number one, we just looked at, well, if you're consumed by sin, and you're thinking sinfully, you're acting sinfully, chances are that whether you made a profession of faith, went forward at an altar call, prayed a prayer, were moved emotionally, if you never repented from your sin, then you just never kick sin out. And that's why you're getting overrun. So the best thing for you to do, and I will give you this opportunity uh, at the end of this service, at the end of this uh, video, for you to be able to repent from your sin. And I'll pray for you. And you can start a new relationship with the Lord. And that's a good thing. But now as we push into the Christian guarding himself, 
uh, against worldliness creeping in. This is point number two of two. This is our final section that we're going to be looking at. And this is where we really hop into Colossians chapter three. If you were wondering if we were ever going to get there, here we go. Point number two is this. How do you stop worldliness from creeping into your life? Point number two, change the way you think. Change the way you think. Let's read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Don't worry, I'll explain what he's saying. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, if there was ever a time in our generation where our minds were focused on other things, it would be now. Wouldn't you agree? We have so many things that have been sucking up our energy and our attention that have been vying for our time, but that seems to be shifting as of late. I mean, have you noticed now that everything has been shutting down, that certain things have just Uh, risen to the top of our priority list? I mean, have you seen that in your own life, in your family's life? Now, I'm just not referring to these changing, you know, priorities as being in regards to toilet paper and, and kitchen towels and groceries. No, I'm talking about serious things. I'm referring to things that as a Christian, we wished prior to this coronavirus pandemic that we would have improved upon. You know, things as as a Christian man, oh, I wish I would have done more of this or I could do more of this. Maybe you as a Christian woman and you're listening to this thinking, you know, I've had a lot of things stripped away. You know, maybe I know for me, and maybe it's the same for you, the two most important things for me are spending more time with the Lord and spending more time with my family. I mean, honestly, those are the two things that should probably be our number one and two priorities as a follower of Jesus. Number one is our relationship with the Lord, and number two is our relationship with our family members. Those two things, I find, are the two most important things in life, the Lord and my family. And it's a good thing, I'll tell you, that we didn't lose internet connection with some sort of other virus that's out there because I don't think we would have been able to survive if we haven't been able to, we weren't able to, to connect with one another, at least via uh, technology. Now, recently in house groups, which were on Thursday nights, which we thankfully concluded right before all, you know, the earth went sideways, we studied the flood and Noah's Ark. Uh, They didn't have cell service. And I was thinking about this. They didn't have cell service or an internet connection. They didn't have any of the popular, you know, means of viewing movies and TV shows. They didn't have online shopping sales and apps that they could, you know, do some retail therapy with. What they did have, though, was the Lord in the middle of their storm, even as you do right now. Noah and his family cooped up. I mean, talk about cabin fever. They were on one massive boat of a cabin made out of gopher wood, covered in pitch with a bunch of animals. They had nothing in there. But they had the Lord in the middle of the worst storm in the history of mankind. They had each other, and they were caring for God's creation on that ark, so they still had to fulfill their calling. So if you look at the things that didn't change in the midst of the flood on on the earth for Noah and his family, what didn't change, first of all, was the Lord was there with them. He will never leave them. He'll never forsake them, and he won't do that to you either. He'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. So in the middle of this terrible coronavirus outbreak across the world, you're still there with the Lord. You're still there with the Lord. And as you're cooped up with your kids and with your family members, I mean, maybe you're spending more time with your spouse than you ever have in your entire life. Maybe, you know, you are working through things that are stressful. Maybe the kids are just bouncing off the walls. You know, maybe, I I don't know, throw your own variables in there. But you have the Lord, you have your family, and you know what else you have? Do you know what else you have? You still have your calling. You still have your calling that even as Noah and his family cared for God's creation, we still have the ability and the 
in the ways that we are afforded to be able to care for God's creation, namely our neighbors. A lot of us are coming out on our driveways and saying hi to each other. People are walking more. They're getting out. You know, we were a backyard society. Now we're becoming more of a front yard kind of culture. You know, things are changing. So you still have your calling. That hasn't changed. God's still on the throne. You still have the Lord. You still have your family. So how are we going to walk going forward from this point? See, I think it would serve us all well by being busy about the same types of things, which would be staying connected to the Lord, staying connected to our family, and staying connected to our calling. Those three things. Those three things. Let me say it again. Stay connected to the Lord, stay connected to your family, and stay connected to your calling. If you've truly repented of your sin, then you have not only been forgiven of that sin, but you've been raised from the grave of spiritual death into new spiritual life. This is where Paul leads off with in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this in verse 1, and we could read it, if then you are truly saved. If you're saved, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, if you have so been raised with Christ into a new spiritual life, you don't want to go back into the very thing that Jesus laid his life down for to set you free of. You don't want to be controlled by anything that is of this world. It's not worth it. The things of this world, as we all have seen, can be taken away from us in a heartbeat, in an announcement from our mayor or our governor or our president. All these things, gone, sorry, shut down. But what you have in Christ can never be taken away from you. So seek those things that pertain to where Christ is. In heaven, these are heavenly things. And where is he? Remember, well, he is in the place of preeminence. Jesus at the right hand of God. This is your savior, my savior, my God. Jesus is the one to whom we belong. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords forevermore. And so you, you, me, we, we need to have our focus We need to have our focus upon the things that pertain to the Lord, because right now it's easy for us. It's very easy for us to have our focus everywhere other than on the Lord. You know, on a personal note, just from me and my family, we really have had a challenging time being at home. You know, Hudson School was canceled, as many of your kids were as well. Ava's therapy, which she needs desperately, you know, gives her her sensory input. And she was going to therapy every single day for hours. And it was really good for her. Her Therapies have been, you know, uh, canceled. So on multiple levels, it's been very hard with, with Ava, you know, and Ruth giving birth to our son any moment, it would seem now. I mean, she's really getting close to having that baby and having doctors, uh, having her doctor tell her that, Uh, There's supposed to be a a lot of COVID-19 patients in the hospital, you know, during the the time where she's due to bring a new baby into into the world. And that's very concerning, you know, pastor or no pastor, pastor's wife, no pastor's wife, just as a follower of the Lord. You know, you have the, the risk of infections at the hospital. They've even gone as far to say that I won't even be able to be in the room with her when she goes into labor. You know, and this is changing constantly. And when you think about it, it's like giving birth is hard enough, let alone go do it by yourself without your husband. You know, and so there, there are these risks, you know, for the, for the baby and, and, and for Ruth, you know, and all these things. And so really, I'm not just up here trying to tell you what you need to do. I'm not just up here trying to say, hey, this is what you need to do to take care of yourself. Really, what's happening is we we have to practice what we preach by keeping our minds stayed upon the Lord. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 26, and let's look at verse 3. 
Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. When we keep our focus upon things above, we're reminded that God is still on the throne, regardless of what is happening down here on earth. And when I focus on the things that are above, I'm focusing on the Lord. I'm focusing really on those things that cause me to to raise my line of sight above my current problem or above my current situation that I'm facing and onto the Lord, my Savior, my King, my God. As I'm lifting my line of sight to the Lord, I'm also reminded of eternity. It's not here on earth, but rather with the Lord in heaven. I'm in this world. I'm not of this world. I'm a pilgrim passing through. And what we're going through now will not last forever. There will be an end to all of it. Now, I've been raised with Christ, and I belong to a kingdom that is above all earthly kingdoms. And the Christian that sets his mind on things above is a Christian that is not overrun by fear or by panic. The world panics. The world is controlled by fear. Now, listen, I'm not having to give a disclaimer that Christians are to go lick doorknobs and stuff because we're not controlled by fear. Don't be stupid. You see these people doing all kinds of crazy things called the coronavirus challenge. They're out of their minds. I shouldn't have to give a disclaimer that a Christian, though we take the uh, the, the, the precautions of, of washing our hands and, and right now we're socially distancing ourselves, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that a Christian isn't to do those things. But what I am saying is that the fact of the matter is that a Christian who has the mind of Christ, who is, whose mind is set on things that are above, is not overrun by fear or by panic because our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus has not lost his power in your life. And when everything is stripped away, we find as a Christian, Jesus was all that we ever needed, and he is still what we have right now. And as a Christian, especially during worldwide problems like the coronavirus, your idea of faith is reaching the world in real and practical ways. Your idea of faith is reaching the world in real and practical ways, so much to the extent that you say what you believe is directly, what you say you believe is directly related to how you behave. What you say you believe as a Christian is directly related to how you live. And one of the behaviors of a Christian outside of the repentance of sin is having your mind focusing on things that are above. Our identity is found in that which is from above, Jesus. Jesus, not that which is uh, upon the earth or anything pertaining to this life. By focusing upon the things of the Lord, you're able to do the will of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, do good. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means being set apart. So as a Christian, set apart from how the world lives, how the world reacts, how the world thinks, what the world focuses on. This is how you're set apart from the rest of the world, the unbelieving world, might I add. It all starts with our focus, what our mind is set upon. And that's what we now read in verse 2 that we're to set our minds on things above, not on things on earth. Now, there's been this saying about Christians that's been more of a put down that, oh, you know, he was so heavenly minded, he was no earthly good. Now, there are some people that live in the clouds. They're delusional. They're not in touch with the real world. There, there are people that need to be inebriated or, or need to get high in order to, to cope with life. They smoke pot or they use other drugs to alter their reality. Being a Christian does not mean that you're out of touch with the needs and reality of the world. I'd actually argue that it's quite the opposite. See, the Christian who knows the Lord, knows the Bible, knows the needs of the human race. We do. 
We're the ones that through being heavenly minded know that this world is passing away. And just like the door of Noah's ark was closed, so too the door of salvation for those on this earth will eventually close. And when I have set my mind upon the things that are above, I'm setting myself apart from those that are continually focused on things that are here on this earth. Now, there are practical needs that we have as Christians. We want to be good stewards and take care of our responsibilities. But all 1626 from the New Living Translation And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Really, when we set our minds on things that are above, we're setting our affection upon things that are above. Our affection upon things that are above. Where our treasure is, there our affection will be also. In 1 John 2.15, again from the New Living Translation, John writes and says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And so as a Christian, having received the love that comes from above, we're able to view the life that we have here on earth differently. I'd like you to notice two particular words in verses one and two. It's the word seek and set. Seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things that are above. In the Greek language, the word seek means this, to think about, to reason with, to meditate upon, and to inquire into. And this translation even goes as far to say or to replace the word uh, seek with the word crave, crave, interesting, crave those things that are above. Look at the next word in verse two, set, means to have an understanding and to be wise concerning heavenly things. And so when we think upon heavenly things, when we seek heavenly things, when we are meditating upon the truths of God's word, it's a beautiful thing that takes place in the life of a Christian. It's particularly put in play when going through hardships or testing because it causes us to fix our eyes upon the Lord. When the world starts crumbling and crashing down, we immediately are able to see the Lord. There is nothing blocking our view, our line of sight. We have to lift our eyes high to be able to see the Lord who is above all earthly things. And when we're going through painful or uncertain times, it it causes us to crave the connection to God like never before. Maybe you've experienced that, where maybe you're currently going through something like that, where it's causing you to just crave a a word from the Lord. Uh, Lord, speak to me from your word, the devotionals, or through prayer, Lord. Send somebody to, to give me encouragement or whatever, and you're craving that. You're desiring it. This is what it means to seek those things that are above. I crave a response. I crave a connection with God, where I need his touch where I need to know that he's true to his word on a very personal level. And as we seek the Lord, oftentimes crying out to him, we find that our minds are now set upon things that are above. And you know what takes place in the life of the believer when your mind is set upon things that are above? You grow in your understanding of deep spiritual truths that are impossible to fathom without a personal experience of God's faithfulness. A personal experience of God's faithfulness to you. And you grow wiser in spiritual things pertaining to God. Our short life on this earth and the kingdom that lasts forever. We grow wiser in the things pertaining to God how short life is here on this earth and a kingdom that will endure forever. So seek those things that are above. Seek those things that are above. The finish line for the Christian isn't down here. It's up there. And if you're going to run your race to win, then keep your eye on the prize. You're going to cross the finish line up there in heaven, not down here on earth. So set your, thing, set your mind on things that are of the Lord, things that are above, and your mind will be 
at peace. You will have perfect peace because your mind is set upon the Lord. Keep your eyes on him all the way until you reach him. Run your race. I'm looking to him. Literally, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And as the world is exploding and I got these difficulties and these trials and all these things that are happening, my eyes remain focused on the Lord. It says, for you died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, verse 4, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul writes that Christ is our life. Did you catch that? Verse four, Christ who is our life. I think that statement begs the question, all things considered where we're at right now on this given date, March 29th, 2020, is Christ your life? Is Christ our life? Paul writes to the church in Colossae, to the Colossian Christians, and he says, Christ, who is our life? Well, we know Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We understand that. But really, when things are stripped away, what do we have? We have the same thing that we had at the beginning of our relationship with the Lord, that direct connection to God. That voice of the Lord that gets clouded out with all the the ambient noise of and distractions of the world, whatever they may be. I truly believe that God is stripping all of these things away so that he might get our attention. And I'm not going to pretend that it's not difficult. I mean, the moment somebody says you can't have something, the natural inclination is I want that more now. It's true. I mean, just try saying, you know, I'm not going to eat those uh, Oreo cookies in, in the cupboard. I, I'm not going to do it. Um, so, you know, it's part of my new nutrition plan. No more power circles. I, I have to lay off. And then every time you open that, that cupboard, that pantry door, you see them in there, but you can't have them. But all of a sudden you want them more. You want them more. I think it's just mankind. That's our flesh. Tell me I can't have something that I'm used to having. Tell me I can't do something that I'm used to doing. And we wrestle with those things. But I think the Christian whose mind is set upon things that are above is starting to see the great clearing away of distractions between mankind and the God who created him. We're reaching more people right now with the gospel via the internet than we have ever in the history of the church. This is the gospel spreading around the world. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, and you know it. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die isn't loss. I'm not going to take any of these things with me. So the Christian has a different mentality than the unbeliever. I actually have to have my mind and my uh, sight set on things that are above upon Jesus. Who I used to be before Christ is dead. That old man, that old woman dead. I died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. That's what Paul wrote. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So listen, Jesus is going to come again. He's coming again. I remember my pastor saying this for years and years and years. Jesus is coming again soon. Jesus is going to appear. He's going to appear. He's coming again for his church. And those that have faith in him will appear with him also. That's what we see from Colossians. And so I have to ask you, will you be one of those that appears with Jesus Christ when he returns? Or would it be that there was never godly sorrow that led to repentance found in your life? Where are you at? Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you been raised into newness of life? Is your mind and your affection set upon him? Is your life hidden with Christ, bound up in him? Where are you at?
If so, then you will be one of the ones that will appear with Jesus when he comes to set up his kingdom, which shall have no end. First John 2.17, as we wrap up here, it says, the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So through repentance, we change the way we live, and through changing the way we think, we find that we are so heavenly-minded that we are a world of earthly good. So set your mind on things above. Right now, with all the pandemonium and we're watching the news 24-7, the world world news was never good before the COVID-19 outbreak. And it's even gotten worse now. And if you want to be depressed and scared and panic, you know, just watch that 24 hours a day, go to bed with it, wake up with it, and you'll see that your mind is focused on the things that are on earth. Give yourself a break. Spend time in the word of God. Take advantage of this time that you have with your kids that are growing older every single day. Take advantage of the extra time that you have with your spouse. Our life is short. Work through the things you need to work through, but keep your eyes focused upon the Lord. That's what sets apart the Christian from a non-believing world. We have repented. We have put our faith in Christ. And now we set our minds on earthly things. No, we set our minds on heavenly things. And that's where true victory comes from. So if you don't want to be a victim of carnal Christianity or worldly living, then change the way you think. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day, and I thank you, Lord, for this church that you've blessed us with. I thank you for every family, every person, Lord, that is here today, and I ask, God, that you would please minister to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask, God, that you would be glorified in everything that takes place Over these next, well, we don't know how long, Lord, we're going to be in the situation that we're in, but we ask that you would give us grace to endure it, that you would help us, Lord, uh, to, to, to utilize this time for your glory. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would please protect every family, Lord, against this sickness. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would heal those that have been infected. Lord, I ask, God, that you would use this that was meant for evil and turn it into something good. Lord, I pray, Father, for your blessings to be upon your church in Jesus' name. And and with every eye closed and head bowed, if you're here uh, today uh, watching this or listening to this, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, or maybe you have at one time and in you, you backslid, uh, uh, maybe you put your faith in Jesus and, and you never repented of your sin. So it wasn't that sin crept in. You just never kicked it out through repentance. Whatever the case may be for you today, if you know that you've sinned and that you are estranged from Christ, that you don't, and you don't have that assurance of knowing that when you die, you'd go to heaven, then I would just like to share just real briefly with you that today's the day of salvation. Give your life to Christ. Repent and turn from your sin. God so loves you that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. And so if you need to get right with God, then I'm going to invite you to make that commitment to Jesus today. I'm going to invite you to make that profession of faith and then to repent and turn from your sin. And we want you to know that even in advance, that we're here to help you grow spiritually. You may be moved emotionally. You may get fired up. You might be touched intellectually, whatever it might be through certain services that we have here at the church. But it's more than that. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit producing godly sorrow leading to repentance. And if you're truly sorry, if you're truly repentant, and you know that you've sinned against God and you like to be right with God today, His forgiveness is available to you i just like to lead you in a very simple prayer. So if you would please close your eyes and bow your head and repeat this prayer after me and pray, Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I have sinned, but I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you love me, even knowing everything about me. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And I thank you that you have forgiven me of all my sin. 
Would you fill me with your love and your joy and your peace and give me your strength to repent from my sin and to follow after you? For I give you my life today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know that the Bible says that the angels in heaven are rejoicing. It says that they rejoice when one sinner repents and seeks the Lord. And we want you to know as a church at Vision City Church, we'd love to send you some materials. We'd love to help you as you grow in your relationship with the Lord because it starts today. Who you were when you turned this on is not who you are as you turn this off in just a moment. And we want to help you as you start this new relationship with the Lord. Please visit visioncitychurch.com and be sure to hit the contact button. We'd love to get in contact with you. Reach out to us. We'll get back in touch with you and we'll help you as you start this new relationship with the Lord. And so for all of you, church family, may the Lord bless you today. May he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, and may he be gracious unto you, lifting up his countenance upon you and giving you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.